Yeah, please stand with me as we read uh, the scripture this morning that Pastor uh, Wayne will be uh, uh, preaching on. Uh, we're going to be reading John chapter 18, verse 39, continuing in uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Not Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we again are just so thankful that you gathered us here this morning, Lord, as as one church, Lord, in worship. And Lord, we pray that you would speak through Pastor Wayne, Lord, uh, through this this text, Lord, to give uh, greater understanding. Lord, we, we pray you'd soften our hearts, Lord, and give us ears to hear your word. May, may you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're making our way to Easter, which is coming up in just a few weeks. And so we have seen in the final hours before the crucifixion, Christ has transitioned his disciples from the observance of Passover to the implementation of the Lord's Supper. He then dismisses Judas to do what he had purposed in his heart to do, not realizing that his betrayal was actually fulfilling scripture. Then Christ leaves the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, where the Romans, at the instigation of the Sanhedrin, will arrest him and deliver him to Annas, the godfather of Israel, 
who had been a former high priest, and now sends him over to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is the current high priest, and to the Sanhedrin for a formal declaration that will find him guilty of being both God and man. At daybreak, they send him to Pilate, the Roman governor, who has the power to crucify him under the pretense that he claims to be a king, and that makes him a threat to Caesar's power. Pilate doesn't trust these guys. He knows they're liars. He knows they're delivering Christ up for envy. He knows that there's no testimony. There's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Christ has ever been a political threat to Caesar. But Christ has consistently taught that that man is to respect the Lord's provisions for government. But it's his popularity with the Jews, particularly the Galilean Jews, that have come down from the north for Passover. You combine that with his exposure of the Sanhedrin's hypocrisy. And these religious leaders are really afraid that if he is allowed to continue to teach as he's been doing in the temple, that Rome is going to come in and remove their ability to govern their own affairs because he's going to stir up all of these Jews and that's going to be a signal to the Roman authorities that the Jews are a problem. It's Pilate's job to keep the peace. And so they send him over to Pilate to be crucified. Yet when Pilate examines him, he finds no fault in him. To avoid giving the Sanhedrin what they are demanding, Pilate tries every way he can think of to avoid a very tense situation. And the first idea is I'm going to send him over to Herod Antipas. Herod is the tetrarch that is over Galilee. That's where Christ has spent most of his time on earth. First in Nazareth, and then when he began his ministry, because they were plotting his death as of John 5.18, he went into northern Galilee, and he has been doing miracles up there throughout the Decapolis. And so Pilate thinks this is excellent. Excellent opportunity. This is Herod's problem, and so he sends him over to Herod. Herod realizes what Pilate is trying to do, and he doesn't go for it. He doesn't go for it. He mocks Christ, the very fact that he would be a king, and then he sends him back to Pilate. So, so far, he has been on trial five times. Uh, they send him over to Annas, who sends him over to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, who try him just hours apart twice, which is what the law required. They send him over then to Pilate, who then sends him to Herod. And now, for the sixth examination, he is sent back to Pilate. So far, the only thing they can find him guilty of is telling the truth. That he is the one the Lord promised to come to reconcile men to God's glory. He is the one who fulfills 355 Old Testament prophecies. Other than that, he's without fault. As far as the Jewish law goes, he has broken none of them. He's not guilty. As far as the Roman law goes, Pilate and Herod agree. He's not guilty. So in our text today, Jerusalem, they're just now waking up and word is beginning to spread and a crowd is beginning to assemble. Luke says that Pilate told the people just prior to verse 39, I'm I'm examining this man. I have found no fault in him and therefore he is no threat. He's no threat to Caesar. It's laughable, which is why 
Herod has been mocking him. It's why Herod makes jokes about the, the foolishness of such accusations. And then he sends him back over to Pilate. And Pilate knows their accusations come from envy. So he plans to release him. He's going to release him. And the Jewish leaders are not going to have anything to do with that. They're going to protest. And that's where our text begins today. You've you got to put yourself in Pilate's shoes here for sure. He's between a rock and a hard place. I mean, the Romans routinely allowed nations they conquered to handle their own affairs beneath the watchful eye of a governor appointed by the Caesar. It's the governor's job to keep the peace. Pilate realizes he's only got this job because he's married to the emperor's granddaughter. And on several occasions, he has not kept the peace. As a matter of fact, he's been the instigator of uprisings among the Jews. We covered those in former messages. He cannot afford to let this get out of control. So if he releases Christ, he realizes these religious authorities are threatening to cause him a lot of trouble. If he crucifies Christ, you know, these Galilean Jews that are in town for Passover, the ones that lined the streets earlier that week shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is our king. Those who like Christ because he's been healing their sick. He's done nothing but demonstrate kindness to them and mercy and compassion. They could cause Pilate trouble. So what's he to do? What's he to do? Well, he comes up with this idea. We have a custom. Glad I thought of this. We have this custom where Romans want to promote goodwill among the Jews so that they will not riot and cause them problems. And so what they would do is they would release a prisoner every year in celebration of Passover. Because the Jews gather in Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate what? Their, their release from Egypt when they were incarcerated there 1,500 years earlier. That's what Passover is all about. So that's the answer to my problem. How can I release him though? How can I do this? I tell you what, I'll let them decide. I'll put forth Christ, whom the, uh, the, the Galilean Jews absolutely love. But now you've got to remember, these are not Galilean Jews that are gathered here before Pilate. These are the religious leaders from the Sanhedrin and those that they have influenced. That's who's gathered. But still, Christ has done no wrong. I'll, I'll, I'll put him and whoever else I can find that is absolutely the worst person imaginable. I will put them forth and let them decide which shall be released. Now Matthew tells us that the one that he chose is a notorious prisoner. He's a violent man. He's a known murderer. This is a guy who's a threat to everyone. He's, uh, he, he's like a Charles Manson. John adds he's also a dangerous thief. I mean, nobody's going to want to let this guy loose. Nobody in their right mind would do that. I mean, this is a slam dunk like Kentucky beating the peacocks of St. Peter. There's no way that can go bad. No one wants Barabbas on the streets again. If you're familiar with Antifa, a group, uh, that's a number of groups that support anarchism, Marxist, communist, 
who stir up problems through violent tactics? That's Barabbas. That's Barabbas. He leads that kind of anarchism. He's an insurrectionist. He's a dangerous radical. You know, it's kind of interesting to just put a little footnote in here that in Aramaic, Bar means son of. So uh, you've got um, uh, Barjona means the son of Jonah, right? Uh, if um, you, you uh, use the name uh, Barnabas, Bar, son of encouragement. Bar Abba. Bar is son of Abba, father. Barabbas is son of father. Here's your choice between son of father and the son of the father Christ. Here are the two. And they cried out, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. Unbelievable. I mean, Pilate, Pilate has, has got to be totally confused at this point. I mean, I'm doing everything I can to avoid doing what is wrong. I mean, I, I've sent him over to Herod, and Herod wouldn't go for it. Herod always likes power and authority, and yet I couldn't get him to be the one to handle this situation. I thought for sure he would like to do that, but he won't. And then I couldn't imagine even the Sanhedrin saying that they wanted Barabbas released. You can't find anybody worse than this. We gotta go with plan C. Maybe if I publicly beat him, let, let, let me just crush a crown of thorns upon his head in mockery of this whole notion that he's a king. Maybe that will satisfy them. It will be a clear demonstration that he's absolutely no threat to anyone. Luke says that Pilate told them that he's going to punish Christ and then release him. See, this is his plan. In Jewish law, you could punish a man by hitting him no more than 40 times with a rod. And so sometimes people bring that up here. That uh, Christ could only be hit 39 times. They, go, they always stop short of just one to make sure they didn't exceed the law. That has absolutely nothing to do with this. Nothing to do. This isn't the Jews uh, that, that are going to scourge him or flog him. This is the Romans. When the Romans scourged a man, they used a whip. They didn't use a rod. A whip with these, these long leather thongs, and they had sharp bone and metal at the end of them. It was designed to literally rip chunks of flesh off the body. This is a deterrent. When you see somebody flogged, you're, you're going to think twice before you even think of going up against the Roman authorities. You don't want this to happen to you. This is brutal. As a matter of fact, if you're a Roman citizen, this can't happen to you. It's too brutal. They wouldn't do it to a Roman citizen. Only those that were part of the, their conquered nations, the vassal nation, under their, under their authority. The other thing is, there was no limit. They could whip you as long as they liked. When Pilate tries to appease these guys by scourging Christ, his soldiers, you have to remember, are anti-Semitic. This is a great opportunity for them to just unleash their brutal attacks upon this one they despise, 
as a Jew. I don't think we can even imagine what this was like. There are no limits to this. You know, when Mel Gibson made the movie The Passion of the Christ and they came to this scene, he put a protective apparatus over the back of the guy who was playing Christ. And when they were going through the, the filming of this and it showed the, the Roman soldier unleashing these thongs of leather with these sharp pieces of bone and metal, one piece of one thong in one lash missed the apparatus and caught one small piece of his body and they had to shut down filming. Just one leash went awry. One lash went, a, went awry. And they had to stop it. He was in such agony. They had to treat him. He immediately broke character. And you know, while the physical brutality of what they did should never be minimized, it really doesn't compare to what Christ experienced when taking the wrath of God for the sin that we deserve. The wrath we deserve for sin. He's satisfying. This is a propitiating death that he's going to die. To satisfy the just wrath of God for our sin? I just don't think it's possible, folks, for us to ever record on film what actually took place at this moment in time in human history at the crucifixion. I mean, this, this strand of thorns made into a, a phony crown beat down upon his head with a reed was extremely painful. The brutality of the scourging by four, five, six different soldiers, big men. These are executioners who are unleashing their wrath till they're exhausted. Combined with Christ's need to satisfy the just wrath of God's holy care, it's just beyond human comprehension. I don't think we can get there with our minds. You know, there were many criminals who received far less, far less beating than Christ received that is recorded in history. They died. They died in the process. They bled to death. To further mock this idea that Christ is a king, they drape a faded Roman tunic around his bloodied body. They put that crown of Palestinian thorns that were up to 12 inches long upon his head. And with his face completely disfigured beyond recognition, Pilate drags him out and declares once again, I find no guilt in him. Is that not amazing? I just beat this innocent man beyond recognition. I find no guilt in him. Behold the man. And the religious leaders cry, crucify him, crucify him. You know, some make a big issue out of the, the fickleness of the, of the people of that day. You know, they're, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at the beginning of the week and at the end of the week they're crying, crucify him. That is not true. That's not true. This is a completely different group of people. Those who lined the streets shouting, Hosanna, were Galilean Jews for the most part. 
These who are before Pilate, it says they are the chief priests and leaders and the people they have influenced. They have gathered for this trial. Pilate's mocking these leaders. He's mocking them. Behold the man that you claim is a threat to Rome. Behold the man you, you say claims to be a king. Behold the man you say is so dangerous that we must execute him. Look at him. Look at him. He can barely stand up. You claim he's a threat to Caesar? Really? He's trying to make his case for why he's going to release him. He's tried to pass Christ off to Herod, but it didn't work. He's offered up Barabbas. It didn't work. He has beaten him beyond recognition. And that's not working either. He's asked them to prove their case against him. And what evil has he done? And that, that, that didn't work. That didn't go over. So someone in the crowd shouts out, we, we have a law. We have a law, you know. Talking about Leviticus 24. We have a law that says that he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. In other words, you're right, Pilate. You're right. He's not guilty of sedition. But I tell you what, all these miracles that he's been doing, you know what he said over here to the temple all week long? All these miracles that he does, he does them because he is the I am. The I am who I am. That's the, that's the name that God told Moses to deliver to the people in Egypt. You tell them, I am who I am, Yahweh. has sent you. He says he is the I am, incarnate, wrapped in human flesh. That's what we found him guilty of was blasphemy. He's admitted it to us. He's admitted it to you. His kingdom may not be of this world, but it is a kingdom where he says that truth reigns. It is a kingdom, so he is a king. And so our law says that he must be Put to death because he's made himself the son of God. That frightens Pilate. Why? The word frightens here is the word from which we get the word phobia. Why does that frighten Pilate? Why, why does he panic over this? Well, you got to go back and put yourself in his shoes. You got to remember in that day, the Romans believed whether, you know, no matter how silly it may seem, but they believed whether it was Greek gods or Roman gods, that they would visit the earth in one form or another from time to time. And so how do you explain the miracles? How do you explain him raising the dead? There's Lazarus. He was in the tomb for four days, verified dead. And here he is walking the streets again. How do you verify? How do you account for? How do you justify the unquestionable authority with which he has been teaching. He claims to have first-hand knowledge of life after death. He claims to have first-hand knowledge of heaven. He says that's where he is from. This is frightening, Pilate. I mean, we can understand that, can we? I mean, when the Apostle Paul heals a man that had been crippled from birth in Iconium in Acts 14, what do the people do? They call him Hermes. Hermes? Yeah, the son of Zeus. 
They said that Barnabas was Zeus. Because, because Zeus and Hermes often travel together. Hermes is the, is the, the god who is believed to be uh, eloquent of speech. It's where we get the word hermeneutics, the one who rightly handles God's word. And, and Paul and Barnabas are having to, to shout at them to stop worshiping us. We are mere humans like you. They claim that, that Barnabas and Paul were gods. As a matter of fact, when Paul gets snake bitten in Acts 28, everybody expected him to die, and he doesn't. He doesn't. And when he gets better, the people of Malta begin saying, he must be a god. And so to a pagan like Pilate, this is far more frightening than having the emperor angry with him. He doesn't trust the Sanhedrin. He doesn't even like these guys. His wife has warned him against passing judgment on this righteous man in whom there is no guilt. And now, what if he's the son of God? What's he to do? He's panicked. So he goes back inside and he says to Christ, you may be thinking, you know, know, the things that you, you have done, I mean, men can't do those things. They can't. And yet you look like a man. You bleed like a man. Your body gives the appearance of a man. Tell me, where are you from? Christ gives him no answer. Why? Isaiah 53 says, like a lamb led silently before his shears. He'll not open his mouth, but submits to God's will. By the way, just a little footnote here to put in the margins. When men stand in judgment before a holy God, they will have nothing to say. They'll be without excuse. And there will be no escape. No escape. They will be guilty and they will be silent in God's presence. Now, for those who are born again in Christ, thank goodness. Thank goodness that's not going to happen to us. Because Christ has taken our place in judgment at the cross. And he stands there silently ready to drink the bitter cup of God's holy wrath that we deserve. And he does so without a word of protest. And so Pilate says, will you not speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you or crucify you? And Christ answers, you'd have no authority over me at all. Unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, the the authority of government is not intrinsic to itself. It's given by God to man for his benefit. We see it all the way back in Genesis 9. After the flood, after the judgment of God, Noah and his family are still sinners. And they're going to give birth to sinners. That's the reason you get to the Tower of Babel. And so right after the flood, the Lord implements the authority of government. You shed man's blood by your blood shall, shall, man, shall the government take your, your life. Your blood shall be shed. And that's why, to be honest with you, whether we agree or disagree, we are to be respectful with those who are in office. With those who are in uniform, with those in our military, with those who serve as our police. Now, are they always right? Absolutely not. Pilate's not going to be right in many of the decisions that he makes. But that's not a biblical basis for anarchy. 
We see Christ submitting to the authorities knowing knowing they can't do anything to him. The Lord hasn't already providentially appointed for his own sovereign purposes. So we've got to keep this in mind, don't we? We never have to operate within the box of cause and effect. Ever. If the Lord wants to take Pharaoh's firstborn, he can do it. If he wants to part the Red Sea, he can do it. If he wants to close the mouth of lions, he can do it. If he wants to put us through a fiery furnace for a purpose and have us emerge without so much as a smell of smoke, he can do it. He can do it. Nothing can happen that he can't and won't work together for our good in his glory. Now, that may not be true of you because that's not true of all people. That is only true of those who are called according to his purpose. Pilate is going to sin against his conscience because he knows that Christ is innocent. He is going to sin against his divinely given responsibility as as a government official, as the governor. And he's already pronounced Christ to be without guilt. And yet he's going to order his crucifixion. That's bad stuff, isn't it? But you know who has the greater guilt? Those who claim to be the people of God, those who have the word of God, those who wore the name of God, for them to say, crucify the son of God and let his blood be on us and our children, we have no king but Caesar. There's the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him But the Jews cried out, you release this man. You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. One fellow said that whenever he and his wife have a major disagreement, she will at some point stop pleading her case and simply say, you are the head of this house. You have been commanded by God Almighty to be the spiritual leader of this home. And so I leave this decision with you, knowing that a sovereign God will deal with you justly. That would drive you to your knees in prayer. That would make you stop and think twice before you make a rash decision. Pilate knows they want him to do what is wrong. Pilate knows that he's killed a number of men who were insurrectionists. This never bothered him. The problem this time is this man is not guilty. He's not guilty of any offense against Rome. I find no fault in him. You, you claim to be people of law, right? What should be done? We've already told you. Crucify. Crucify. Pilate has a decision to make, and he knows if he turns this man loose, there could be a a lot of problems there. Major riot. If he crucifies him, it could be even worse. He would have the blood of this innocent man on his hands. Let me ask you, what would you do in this situation? Think about that. Put yourself in Pilate's shoes for a moment. These religious leaders play their last card. They said, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. If you don't crucify him, 
You're someone Caesar can't trust. And we all know that Caesar is a paranoid recluse. We all know that Caesar's hiding at this very moment on this island out here. He's a nut. He is, he is, he is going to savagely respond at any hint that you are unfaithful to him. So if word reaches Caesar that you've mishandled this situation, oh, it's not just your title, it's not just your job, it's not just your marriage, it's most likely your life that it's going to cost you. So let me ask you again, what would you do? When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the pavement, on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, it's Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Why does John tell us this? When Pilate comes out and he takes his seat at what's called the pavement, this, this area where, where judicial judgment is, is rendered, everyone is going to lean forward to hear what he says because once he says it, whatever he says at this spot, whatever judicial edict he issues, whatever he says, that's the final word. You cannot undo it. So they're all listening. It's very quiet. He's getting ready to speak ex cathedra, which means from the chair. It's the day of preparation. He tells you that because that's the day when you were supposed to remove all 11 from your home. You know why? Because they left Egypt so quickly at the command of the Lord, didn't have time for the bread to rise. And so that's why you have unleavened bread at Passover and why you have unleavened bread that represents his incarnate body for the Lord's Supper. And you're to clean all 11 out of your house because 11 come to represent sin. You were going against God's word. You didn't respond to his call to leave under the blood of one that was without blemish. So to be a good Jew in Judea, this is the time when you were to get all of that stuff out of your house. Galilean Jews often observed Passover on Thursday night, but the Jews there in Judea would be preparing for Passover on Friday. Why does John tell us this? Because Christ is our Passover. We're covered by his blood. He's our Passover lamb who is crucified. And he's crucified, John wants you to know, about the same time the Judeans would have been slaughtering their lambs. This nation that grumbled against Moses. This nation that attempted to, to kill Elijah. They tried to stone the other prophets. The Lord now sends his final word. Final word, this is his son. Behold your king. And they mock him and scorn him and ridicule him because they have come to prefer their religion over a relationship with the Lord through Christ. And John says it's about the sixth hour. Mark, when he's writing to the Romans, which he had done several years earlier, he said Christ was crucified around the third hour. Who is right? Both of them. Both of them. 
They didn't wear watches back then. Um, the, the movement of the sun determined the time. And they just want you to know this whole fiasco of injustice began at the break of dawn. And it continued for some time. I mean, he, he was brought before Pilate. Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod deals with him, sends him back to Pilate. Then he brings him out with Barabbas. Then he has him brutally beaten before he has him to begin his journey with the cross to the place of the skull. Mark and John both recall this is happening about mid-morning. As Mark wants you to know how long it was that Christ is going to be lifted up on that crossbar just as Moses had lifted up that crossbar in the wilderness, the Nehushtan. He wants you to know how long it was that Christ was suspended in darkness as he received the just wrath of God for our sin. And John wants you to know how long it was that Christ was brutalized by the sins of men. Both are right. Both are right. The illegal trials at night before Annas and then Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin twice the brutal injustice before Pilate, before Herod, before the religious leaders, before the Roman soldiers, all results in a mid-morning crucifixion. About the time the Judeans would be slaughtering their Passover lambs, Christ is being lifted up as our Passover lamb. And they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king. So he delivered Christ over to them to be crucified. Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat called the stone pavement. And he asked the crowd, he asked the crowd to make the decision. What would you have done? Have you ever heard of such a thing? They led him away to bear a cross to the place of the skull. In Hebrew, it's called Golgotha. They accused Christ of blasphemy for telling the truth. Before they blasphemed the Lord by saying, we have no king. We have no king but Caesar. Matthew records that a Jew from North Africa was in Jerusalem for Passover. His name was Simon of Cyrene. In the movie version, he is often portrayed with a child. And many believe it's because Mark tells us that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's believed that Mark includes that detail because he is writing his gospel to the Romans. And in the book of Romans, chapter 16, Paul says, Greet Rufus, a choice man of the Lord, also his mother and mine. His mother and mine. Simon of Cyrene, he's got two boys, Alexander and Rufus. And Paul says, greet Rufus. And so many believe that the mother of Simon of Cyrene served like a second mother to, to the Apostle Paul. It's a matter of history. There was an individual who was a martyr in the church named Alexander. I mean, is that the reason that Mark includes this detail about Simon of Cyrene? who steps in at this point to carry the cross for Christ? 
Maybe. I don't know. But they come to this hill called the place of the skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha. In Latin, Calvary. The exact same place where a little over 2,000 years earlier, a guy named Abraham came and brought his son of promise, Isaac, and laid him on wood to be sacrificed. And the Lord stops him to shed the blood of an innocent lamb in his place. A thousand years after that, and a thousand years before this, on that very same hill, David comes. When the Lord is about to judge Israel for their rebellious behavior. And he comes there and he, he, he buys uh, this, this, this land. The guy says, I'll give it to you. And David says, no, 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 you're not gonna, I'm not going to offer the Lord anything that doesn't cost me something. No, no, you're not going to give me an offering to give to the Lord. I am going to purchase it. This same hill. And it's where he erects an altar for sacrifice. His son, Solomon, on this very same spot, says we're going to erect the temple here where sacrifice is going to be made. Every fall, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Every spring, Passover. Right here, same hill called Moriah. It's a takeoff from the Hebrew word for terror, Morah. The Lord will not take Isaac's life. He will not take David's life. But he covers their sin with the blood of one without guilt. This is his final word. This is the final sacrifice on the hill of terror. Where thankfully, many of us will never have to go because Christ has already gone there and he said, it is finished. It's finished. You know, the writer of Hebrews says that there is no creature hidden from God's sight. All things are open to the eyes of him to whom, to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13. You know, many today, like Pilate, find no fault with Christ, but like Pilate, they fail to do what is right by Christ. They spend their entire life trying to avoid the fact that he is the son of the living God. So let me ask you this morning, what would you do knowing this information? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? There are many, many, many lessons that we could learn from this. Let me just quickly, as we get ready to close in prayer, just mention two or three for you to consider. One is just make sure to respond to the truth of Christ before he goes silent. Did you ever thought about that? You know, the Lord said in Genesis 6, my spirit will not always strive with man. Grace has its limits. Oh, it's amazing grace. No question about that. It's efficacious grace, but it's not to be taken for granted. Don't presume upon God's mercy. Number two, make sure to humble yourself before Christ. Don't don't arrogantly think that you've got the authority to receive him or reject him. Don't you know if it were not for the grace of God, your heart, your heart could be hardened as quickly as Pharaoh's? As Christ said to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it's given from above. Folks, we have no authority to come to Christ on our terms we have to come by his grace through faith in the one he's provided to reconcile us to him we have no authority to create our own religions and demand that he accept them 
We have no authority to, to say, Lord, I have made myself good enough for you. Really? See, Pilate was guilty and the Romans were guilty. But who did Christ say had the greater sin? Who was it? Who had the greater sin? It's those to whom the Lord has given his word. You've got his word. They scorned it. They rejected it. They cried, crucify him because we don't want your means of reconciliation. We can handle this ourselves. We are Sadducees. We are Pharisees. We are the religious elite. We are good enough on our own. Matthew said that Pilate asked, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And you realize that their eternal destiny was determined by their answer. And so is yours. So is ours. There's no escape, folks. No escape. You cannot avoid judgment. What will you do with Jesus as the Christ? How, how will you escape if you ignore so great a salvation, the writer of Hebrews says. Chapter 2, verse 3. How are you going to escape if you ignore so great a salvation? You know, and third lesson is make sure you don't allow your friends and your family or your circumstances to influence whether you do what is right with Christ. Pilate knew the truth about Christ, but he didn't do what he knew was right with Christ. Why? He was afraid. He was panicked. He was afraid of losing his job, afraid of being rejected by his boss, afraid that the crowd would, would go against him. He was afraid. He was a coward. What about you? What about you? Are you willing to take a stand? Are you willing to bow a knee before him in submission? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him no matter what it costs? Are you willing to do that? Or will you be like Pilate? If you have questions, that's the reason we have the connect table. Go there. We'll be glad to help. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for creating us in your image. And after we disfigured what you gave for good through our sin, we thank you, Lord, for sending Christ that by your grace through the gift of faith in him we are born again thank you Lord we realize Lord that no one escapes this life without dealing with the truth who is Christ if there are any this morning who may even be very religious but have never bowed a knee in submission, Lord, we do pray that they would not come under the greater judgment, but would quickly come under your grace. And it's for that, in the name of Christ our Savior, that we ask. Amen.